people, welcome to Think Jewish. And God willing, this this is the last class before Pesach. We'll resume classes after Pesach. This Shabbat is Shabbat Hagadol. Uh, the Shabbos before Passover is called the Shabbat Hagadol. And uh, this week's class is going to be about Pesach and the final redemption. On Passover, we're taught in the teachings of Chassidus and Kabbalah that while the first half of Passover speaks about Egypt, the redemption of Egypt, if you look at the Haftorah, if you look at the, uh, the Haftorah reading of the last days, they're both about the coming of Mashiach. And we know that the first days is celebrating the redemption of Egypt, and the last days is becoming part of the redemption of the final redemption with Mashiach coming. Okay, so the uh, the title. <laughs> I know I do this to you often, but the first time I learned through the mimer, before I send out the email, I come up with one title. After I learn it another two or three times, I come up with another title. So you hear me announcing titles and you're like, oh my God, that's not what the email said. So just bear with me. So the title changed. It became, Can You See Me? Learning to see what you can't hear. Okay? This is one of those classes that's going to need a couple of introductions. The introductions to the class is actually longer than the class itself. So let's get into the introductions because we need to understand some very fundamental teachings in Hasidis to be able to appreciate this class. So let's start with class with the first introduction. First introduction is called transformational wisdom. Okay? What do we mean by transformational wisdom? Normally, when we talk about the difference from a human being and Lahavdal, the animal kingdom, we usually refer to the intellect. The human beings have a higher intellect. Animals do not have higher intellects. The animal's intellect is primarily eat, don't be eaten, procreate. It's, it's just the basic intellect of every single creature. Even the plant knows to turn itself around towards the sun, to have deeper roots looking for water. Every creature was given that innate intellect to be able to focus on survival. Eat, don't be eaten, and procreate. Okay? And in plants and animals, the procreate isn't primarily a seeking pleasure. It's to be able to have the going on beyond your own death. Okay? Now, on the other hand, the human being was given the power of higher intellect. And scientifically, that's explained because of the bigger size of the frontal lobe, the cortex. And in Kabbalah and Hasidus, it explains that the reason why we have a bigger cortex is because we needed to be a vessel for the human soul, which is very different than the godly spark within the animal. They're two separate concepts. And therefore, because the human soul, the godly soul, when it says, and God blew within his nostrils a soul of life, it doesn't say that by the animals. That soul has a higher intellect. And thus the vessel, the human body, has the larger cortex so it can be able to maintain the higher intellect. Thank you. So that's the normal understanding on the difference between the animal kingdom and the human being. However, I was once sitting at a Fabrengen of Rabbi Yoel Khan, a master, a mastermind of the teachings of Chassidus and an, and an extraordinary mentor, a Mashpia. And he was sharing with us something that the Rebbe 
privately told him in a personal audience, which is called Yechidut. Yechidut. You go in a personal, you write a note to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe reads a note and answers questions. So he just said what the Rebbe told him. Why the Rebbe told him, how it came about, he didn't explain. But he said that the Rebbe told him that according to Hasidus and mystical teachings, the primary difference between the human being and the animal is not the intellect. It is actually the emotion. The emotion of an animal is an innate reactionary emotion. It's not contemplative. When the horse hears a sound, it gets spooked. It's innate. It immediately has the fear of being eaten up by a predator. It doesn't contemplate life, death. It doesn't have all those concepts. It's just literally innate, reactionary to what it's perceiving as danger. While the human being, his experience of the emotion of fear, granted, if he does not refine himself and does not work on himself or herself, it is also reactionary. Innate reactionary to a fear of survival. That's the primal part of the brain. It only asks one question, am I safe? However, the higher intellect to be able to contemplate, that is the gift, the true gift of the human being. Not the higher intellect for the higher intellect's sake, but the higher intellect which transforms the human emotion. And therefore, this contemplation, this power of higher intellect redefines, it refines and redefines and transforms the entire human experience of emotions. And thus, in the intellectual world of human beings, we say fear of the unknown is a fool's fear. That's an innate reactionary. Oh my God, what's going to happen? However, the human mind, when it sits and studies and understands, and its emotions of a love and attraction, fear and repulsion, is built upon human higher intellect. Now we're talking about the true beauty of the difference between the human being and the animal. That is what the Rebbe explained to Rabbi Yoel Khan. And that is a whole different understanding. The transformational wisdom. Where the wisdom transforms the intellect. This is why if you study and you understand the teachings of Chabad. Chabad is the acronym for the three types of intellect. Chabad, three letters, Chet Bet Dalid. Stands for Chachma, wisdom, Bina, understanding, dot, knowledge. So here we have the entire name of our philosophy is all about intellect. And yet the greatest emphasis, the greatest emphasis in Chabad is actually upon slow, concentrating, meditative prayer. And now you understand why. Because when we talk about the intellect of Chabad, as Chabad Hasidis, Chabad philosophy, it's not about wisdom as much as it's about transformational wisdom. It's not about the intellect of hypothesis, abstract. The main thing is to have everything we understand should be turned into transformational wisdom. 
transforming, redefining, and driving a whole new set of human emotions. Thus, we now understand Chabad is not intellect as much as it's transformational intellect, which happens through this prayer. We'll soon see later um, other levels of how we deal with it. But now we understand why the dichotomy, the paradox, Chabad is pushing study. Don't just have faith of, of the unknown. Don't have a fool's faith. Have a, a wise man's faith. Understand the God you believe in. Don't just, I believe in God. Who's God? I don't know. Well, you ask me questions. God. No, understand. The Shema Yisrael, Hashem Olekeinu, Hashem Echad, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one, by the true Chabad Hasidim, was not just a, a, a saying. It was actually part of a six-hour meditative prayer until your mind and your heart consummated, crying out together, God is our God, God is one. That's a whole different world. Okay? So, based on this, this understanding of the transformational wisdom, we can now understand the in-depth discussions in Chabad upon what we call Meitzar Hagoyrin, the constraints of the neck. You have the wide head, you have the wide chest, and you have the narrow neck. Hasidus does not just talk about it in a general state. Hasidus gets so nitty-gritty that it talks about the three ministers that are mentioned in the Torah of Pharaoh. You remember we have the three ministers. We have Potiphar, which was the minister of the meat department. We have the two people that had the dreams, the minister of the baking and the minister of the wine. In Hasidus, we transform those three physical beings, humans, and ministers into personal pharaoh ministers. If you know what the word para, pharaoh, how you spell it in Hebrew, it spells out the word oref, neck, the, stickne, the, the stiffness of the neck. If you talk about those three ministers on a deeper level, we're talking about the three main ministers in your neck. You have the food pipe, the wind pipe, and the two main arteries that go from to your brain the blood supply to your brain. According to the teachings of Hasidus, this whole mixture, the general stiffness of the neck, Pharaoh, and individually the three ministers and what they do to the brain, right? I'm, we don't have to get into all the details, but when you eat, your brain gets foggy, right? You're tired after you eat. So this whole concept of these three ministers and the general state of Pharaoh, this, the narrowness, the stiffness of the neck, represents that blockage that sees upon the straits between the mind and the heart. And thus, the wisdom does not become transformational wisdom because there's a blockage between the wisdom of the mind and the feelings of the heart. And that is a huge emphasis in the teachings of Hasidus. So much so that we talk about the personal, we'll talk about this more soon, we talk about the personal exile of Egypt. We talk about the personal redemption of Egypt. And that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about this struggle of the disconnect from the intellect of the mind and the feelings of the heart, which doesn't allow for transformational wisdom to create the knowing heart. And that is what Chabad's focus is. 
that beautiful marriage between the transformational wisdom which creates the knowing heart and thus your feelings are now feelings based upon your understanding and your Torah study and your meditation upon God which then gives birth automatically to the way you think, speak, and act. Okay? When that flow is going nice, then we're talking about redemption of Egypt. When there's blockage in there, when the mind isn't creating a transformational knowing heart, then we're having the experience of the exile of Egypt, the constraints of the Paro slash Oref and his three ministers. Okay? So, this was introduction number one. Second introduction necessary to understand tonight's lecture is to understand the Kabbalistic understanding of the difference between the higher intellect and the lower intellect within the higher intellect of the human being. So we spoke about the human has a higher intellect. We spoke about the animal kingdom only has the innate reactionary intellect and emotions, right? Now we're actually subdividing. Within the higher intellect of the human being, there's a higher intellect and there's a lower intellect. Okay? And now let me just say it to you this way, and then I'll explain myself. The lower intellect of the higher human intellect is to understand the existence of divinity. I'm being careful with my emphasis. The higher intellect of the human's higher intellect is to perceive the essence of divinity. Very different. Now let me, let me just give you a simple example, right? You and I both understand that there's a soul within us, right? There's the living human being and the dead body. And the difference is not in the physical. The difference is that obviously one has a soul of life within it and one doesn't. So we pretty much understand and a lot of our teachings and understanding the intricate ways of how the soul works together with the body. So much of Hasidus talks about that. The relationship between the soul and the body on the most detailed levels. Yet nevertheless, we do not perceive what is the soul. If I were to ask someone, please tell me, what is the soul? What is it made of? What is the essence of the soul? We don't understand. So you have the lower intellect of the higher intellect of the human, which is able to understand that there exists divinity. However, very often we're stuck only with knowing that God exists without any understanding of what is God. What is the essence of God? We study nature. We study science. And we understand the wisdom that God put into his creation. But God is not wisdom. So what is God? Those two differences is the difference between the higher knowledge and the lower knowledge of, God, of the intellect. Knowing of the existence of versus knowing what the essence is. Okay? Now... going to just put forth over here that the external relationship we have with divinity is to understand of its existence. The mere fact that I know that God exists gives me a relationship with him, but it gives me an external relationship. 
Think about the word intimacy. You all know the play of the word intimacy. To have an inner intimate relationship with God, it's not enough just to understand that God exists, but if you want to have intimacy with God, there's got to be the intimacy, which is more than just knowing that there is a God. It's understanding or perceiving what is God. Okay? We're going to go on later, and you're going to just give you a little heads up. Now you understand what the title is. You hear that God exists, but you don't see what God is. We'll talk about that soon. Okay? So those are the two introductions. Now let's take these introductions to the next level. What are we going to do with this? So you have these two understandings. A, let's just recap in one sentence each. A, the difference of transformational wisdom versus abstract wisdom. When the wisdom is stuck in the brain and cannot get through the pharaoh, the seas upon the straits of the neck, through which the knowing heart, the, the, the transformational wisdom of the mind flows to create the knowing heart, then you're dealing with the exile, okay? Versus the second thing we spoke about was the external relationship of knowing that God exists versus the internal relationship with God, the intimacy of intimacy, perceiving what is the essence of God, okay? Now let's go further. The exile of Egypt, we said that the exile of Egypt is the, the seas upon the straits of the neck, right? Let's understand this on a practical level, because if we're talking transformational, then for me just to give you um, words is exactly the exile of Egypt. So let's get practical. Let's understand this. Let's digest this. So I'll share with you a story, a story that happened with a non-Hasidic Rosh Yeshiva, and the mentors in Chabad use this story to help us understand what we're talking about. The, and this is a true story. There was a great scholar, a Litvish Rosh Yeshiva, and he simply slipped and fell. And as he fell, he called out to his students, hurry, lift up the bookcase full of holy books. And he was talking to them. It, by the way, this isn't, I'm not even talking about the ego issue here. This not, doesn't have to be an ego issue. Because he's letting them know, the reason you're honoring me is not me, it's because I'm full of holy books. So he was considering himself a human bookcase filled with holy books. Our mentors take this story and they drill into it. What does it mean, a bookcase filled with holy books? When you have a bookcase filled with holy books, does the holy book have any effect on the bookcase? Is there any point where the wisdom and divinity of the holy books causes any transformation within the wooden or metal bookcase? Is there any single unity and oneness between the holy books and the bookcase? Thus you understand when the human being, being a true scholar, but if all he has is that he is a bookcase full of books, what that's telling us is he hasn't allowed for the holy books to become transformational wisdom, which will change his emotions. And as you all know, anyone in the world of salesmanship, 
the most important part of getting a person out of his comfort zone to close a deal is not by explaining to them how good this is, how important it is, but if you don't succeed in creating a transformational wisdom, if you don't get them scared, you know that there's two other offers on this house. I can't promise you it's going to be available if you don't make the offer right now. What you're doing is because without, that's what a human being is. A human being is not intellect. You can watch people studying in depth, watching videos of what smoking does to your lungs and then go out and take a cigarette. But if you have, God forbid, someone whose brother, father, mother, sister has lung cancer from smoking, that's different. What's different? Because we're not talking no more about intellectual intellect. It now became personalized and emotional. This is transformational. And that's what it's all about. And thus you understand when a person is stuck learning 18 hours a day, becoming a bookcase filled with holy books, we're now dealing with the exile of Egypt. Because the blockage did not allow that wisdom to become transformational wisdom, redefining and transforming your heart, your emotions that are innate reactionary to become contemplative, meditative feelings of a knowing heart. Okay? So now we have a more tangible understanding of what it means when we talk about the redemption, and I'm sorry, the exile of Pharaoh, which represents the, the neck. Okay? Now, now that we understand that the exile of Egypt is all about Pharaoh, i.e. the Oref, the stiffness of the neck, and his three ministers, we now understand that when the wisdom breaks through these barriers and does arouse and create and talk with the heart, that's redemption. Let's step back a moment. I want to talk to you about the power of the voice. And I want to be clear here. There are other places in Hasidus where it talks about the power of talking. And we talk about the power of singing. That's not what we're talking about here. The power of talking is beautifully explained by the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. So much so that the Rebbe himself in 1958 delivered a Maimar on Purim where he talks about how important it is that when you're emotionally angry about something or on someone, you should not talk about it. Because the words magnify the emotion. I mean, we all know it. When you're angry on someone and then you start talking about it, it blows up. Here's a very interesting line which I want to focus on. However, the Rebbe says in that Maimar, and if you do need to talk about it, talk about it quietly. What's the difference between talking quietly and loudly? That's not about the power of speech. That's about the power of the voice. Again, in the Beta Migdash, the Levites, they filled a very important spiritual job. Their job was with the Shira. They played the instruments and they played the songs. The power of songs has two powers. The power of a sweet voice, which is not about the voice. It's about the sweetness of the voice. 
And then there's also the power of the song. Beethoven is, is, is not punk rock. Just has different effects on you. So you're talking about the sweetness of the song or the sweetness of the voice. Not what we're talking about here. We're talking about here specifically the power of the voice. Now let's talk about it first practical, and then let's talk about it on a more spiritual level. Practically speaking, if you were sitting down in a big shul, and you're trying to daven, or you're trying to learn, and you're trying to focus on what you're learning, right? You want to focus on the intentions that you're receiving from the words, or you want to focus on the intentions that you're trying to express in the words of prayer, and then you have noise around you. But let's stop blaming the world. Let's talk about ourselves. What's really bothering us is the noise in our own head. It's not about what people are talking. What do you do? So our sages give us a very interesting rule. Koil me'oirer et ha'kavana. The voice, me'oireret, it arouses the intention. So simply speaking, if you're sitting and davening, and your mind is all over the place, the mere fact that you're going to start saying the words louder, the mere fact that I'm hearing my voice, it gives me like a physical focal point to focus on. The sound of my voice. Right? So that helps me study, that helps me pray. That is not what this mimer is talking about. This mimer is explaining that there is the power within the voice to arouse the intentions of the heart. Not just as a physical focal point. It's the spiritual power of the voice. That the voice attracts the intentions of a heart. So much so that when you see that you're giving a lecture or you're davening with a lack of kavana, and I'm talking about not kavana, deep mystical concentration. I'm talking about feeling. I'm talking about passion. The mere fact that you start being more boisterous, not in the egocentric boisterous, but you start saying the words, you're putting some type of energy into your voice, that itself arouses the intentions of your heart. When I talk to you about this rule, that the voice arouses the intentions of the heart, simply because God gave that power within the voice to arouse the feelings of the heart, you right now are experiencing the struggle of a Jew in exile. Come on, guys, put together the mathematics. I told you that what is the exile when the brain isn't talking to the heart. You're saying words, you know what you're saying, but there's no feelings. It's not transformational. That's exile. So what are you doing to combat the exile of Egypt? You're combating it by a secret that you were taught by the Gemara, by our sages. Actually, not the Gemara. By the sages. And what is that? That arouse your intentions of your heart by raising your voice. Because the voice has the magical power of connecting and arousing with the intentions of your heart. So now you understand what I just said. When you watch someone in the shul davening a little loud and you realize he's doing it because he's really having a struggle. He's half asleep, his mind is all over the place, and he's trying to arouse himself. I don't want to just say the words, I want to feel the words. I don't want to just read the pasuk, I really want to understand the pasuk. 
not just the wisdom of the Pasuk, but the deeper intentions. And when he raises his voice, the voice box that breaks through the neck, you're dealing with a Jew who's struggling in exile. And it works. It works. Raise the voice and you'll find yourself more passionately involved. The, the heart being more involved in what you're saying. So it isn't just an intellectual experience. It becomes a transformational experience, an emotional experience. The heart is digesting what the mind understands in its own language. That becomes an emotion. And as we just said before from salesmanship, the emotion drives the thought, speech, and action. However, when we talk about the redemption of exile of Egypt, we're talking about not needing to use the trick of the voice. We're talking about breaking free that hold that Pharaoh has on the straits of the neck which connect the mind's empire with the heart's empire. We're talking about where you're so into the light, the revelation of the divinity in what you're talking about. You ever heard this saying? It's a saying from the Rebbe in Hayom Yom. When you study Torah, you're as a student sitting before God, your teacher. When you're praying, you're as a child sitting before your father, God. Those two relationships is not about the asking and it's not about the teaching. It's a relationship. A relationship is not built in the mind. The relationship becomes real when it transfers into the heart. And thus when we're talking about that type of revelation of the mind, that it shines into the heart and you don't need to use the voice. You know that. You know that sometimes the prayer goes. It goes. Something happened. The mind and the heart are connecting. I don't even have to raise my voice. I don't have to even hear my voice. I have to enunciate the words because that's the halakha. And even in a place where it's not the halakha, you don't have to actually enunciate it. The Alter Rebbe says that because everything has to manifest itself physically, the movement of the lips is a physical manifestation of the divinity that you're saying out of your mouth. But you don't need the voice to arouse the heart. Because the brain and the heart are communicating. The marriage is working well. That is the redemption from Egypt. Okay? Now that we got that straight, <laughs> we passed those problems, let's talk about the next thing. Let's understand the exile and the redemption of the final redemption. Okay? To understand this, we're going to focus on a verse. The verse comes from Micha, chapter 7, verse 15. And it's a very famous verse. That's actually the opening verse of this mimer that I'm talking about here from 1968. And it says as follows. You know the verse in Hebrew, What does that mean in English? As in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt, I will show him wonders. Now, I want you to figuratively speaking, put the word show in italics bold underlined because the emphasis of this of this verse for this teaching is the word show arenu the word seeing 
because when we talk about knowing the existence of God, we're talking about hearing. When we're talking about perceiving the essence of God, we're talking about seeing. Okay? And now, what is the issue here? The issue here, remember before we said the issue is the neck, right? You have the constraints of the neck. And later on in closing, I'll just be more specific just to give you a little uh, sneak preview, the trailer, is that these three things in your neck, they are what make us coarse. The passion of food. We have the passion of the blood going up to the brain. And we have the frivolity of ear. It has no real texture. That dampens that the heart is no more capable of being open to the finer, higher intellects of the divinity of the mind. But for right now, let's put away the neck. Now we're talking about something else. Within your body, above your head, is the skull called corona. Now that is a very interesting teaching in Hasidus. For just as there is the contraction of the neck between the broad mind and the broad heart, so too there is the contraction of that bone, that skeletal corona skull, which serves as a contraction between the supernal crown and the mind. You see, the human mind, the way we experience it, post the contraction of the skeletal corona, that skull, it is only capable of hearing of the existence of God. It's not open to be able to see the essence of God. And thus all our studying and teachings of Hasidus is more focused on, in the times of exile, it's more understanding that God exists within every single detail of my life. Much more so than having the perception of seeing what is God. So even after the redemption of Egypt, even after the redemption of being able to have the Torah study that I do and the prayers that I do become transformational consummation between the transformational wisdom of the mind and the knowing feelings, the knowing heart. But even then, I'm still living only within the capacity, the intellectual capacity of hearing that God exists and not just exists in heaven. But you know, in all the good therapies, including recovery, you always have the importance of a gratitude list. This Shabbos, someone came here and we were talking by the Kiddush and she told me that she was going to this uh, landmark classes and they spoke about finding a miracle every day of your life. When you find a miracle every day of your life, which if you look for it, you will find it. No question about it. If you look for a miracle, what does that tell you? Does it tell you what God is or does it tell you that God exists not just in heaven but in your life? That is the exodus of Egypt. The clear knowing of the existence of God in every detail and aspect and nanny and crook of my life. 
However, it does not talk about the greater redemption where I'm not stuck just knowing that there is a God, but to be able to see what God is. I want to backtrack for a moment because I did leave out a point. By the way, when we talk about the redemption of Passover, that means we're talking about breaking through the seas upon the neck. That is why we actually eat the three matzahs of grain, which represents the three levels of wisdom, and drink the four cups of wine, which represents the four levels of understanding. Because once you break through that constraint, you actually can eat and digest and it becomes your own blood and flesh, flesh and blood. But that is all about the exodus of Egypt. But even post the exodus of Egypt, we're still struggling with our limitations as a human being. That skull upon our brain does not allow our brain to open itself up beyond its own capacity to be able to see the divinity that flows from the supernal crown within every Jew. And thus we're stuck with only the what? I'm sorry, we're only stuck with knowing that there is an existence of, but not what God is. I am very capable if I'm willing to stop that uh, of my neck, that arrogance of not wanting to experience that God is here in my life. Then if I could, I could overcome that. And I could absolutely find God that he exists in every detail of my life. But I'm still stuck in Galut, not knowing what is this God who is in every detail of my life. To understand this, I want to share with you a metaphor that one of my mentors taught me to be able to really get this. He said, studying Hasidus today before Mashiach comes is like standing by a wall eavesdropping on a conversation happening on the other side of the wall. You do hear what's being said. You do understand what's being said. But what happens when Mashiach comes? The wall comes down. When the wall comes down, what's the first thing you're going to say? Ah, that's what we were talking about. Because now you're not hearing from the other side of the wall. You're seeing. That's what we're talking about. That's the level of the Mashiach which breaks through that blockage of the skull which stops the crown from flowing into the mind. And therefore today we're only stuck with the it exists but not what it is. But when Mashiach comes we'll point the finger and we'll say ah now I see what we were talking about. That's the redemption of Mashiach. Okay. I want to go on with a very interesting question that many of you probably didn't think of and I'll clearly tell you that I myself never thought of this question until someone asked it of me and when the Chassid asked it of me I was like wow what, what was I thinking all these years in Pirkei Avot in chapter 5 Mishnah 7 very famous Mishnah it's a very famous Mishnah because we use it to snap at each other what does the Mishnah say I'll read it to you there are seven things that, character, ca that characterize a boar and seven that characterize a wise man. And then it goes on to list. Now I want to read you one of the things of the seven things of a wise man. Concerning what he did not hear, he says, I did not hear. Right? Then it goes on, and the closing of the Mishnah is, with the boar, the reverse of all these is the case. Now I ask of you a simple question. 
the reverse of someone that says, I did not hear for that which he did not hear is a bore or a liar. That's not a bore. If I didn't hear this, but I told you, yeah, yeah, I heard it. You ever heard a joke? Yeah. You ever heard this teaching? Yeah. You ever heard this story? Yeah. But I didn't. I'm not a bore. <laughs> I'm a liar. So what is the Mishnah saying? The Chassid explained to me like this. <laughs> I will share with you because it's important to say the name. You know, we learn out from the story of Purim that Esther told the Achashverosh, Mordechai told me that they're trying to poison you. The person who told me this is also Mordechai, a blessed memory, my ex-father-in-law, a very, very special Chassid. And he said to me like this, you see, a boar, if he heard the story, and then you tell him the story again with one extra detail, or just a new dynamic, He's going to tell, yeah, yeah, I heard the story already. Yeah, 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 no, Yankel, he went and he came and he did. Yeah, I heard the story. The wise man who hears this one new detail or the story delivered to him on a new dynamic, he says, wow, this I never heard before. This changes everything. The difference between hearing and seeing, the difference between knowing that God exists and perceiving what God is, the difference between hearing while you're standing on the other side of the wall or when the wall comes down and you actually see what we're talking about. If you're a boar, yeah, yeah, I learned this when I was in yeshiva in Galut. <laughs> I learned this already. Yeah, I know. The chachma, the bina, I see it all. But if you're a wise man, wow. This is not just a new detail I'm learning. Now, the corona opened up. It's a whole new relationship with God. We went from having a relationship that you exist, God, and I know you exist, and I know you exist in every detail of my life, to having an intimate relationship into me see. You're allowing me, God, to see into you. That's not what I heard before. That's not what we spent in Galut 2,000 years studying. This is a whole new relationship. That's the definition of a wise man. Okay, in closing. In closing, I, I'm actually going to tell you that this time I have a closing and I have an epilogue. <laughs> Had to sneak in a double closing, so we came up with another word. <laughs> okay, but you'll notice that I'm actually being, I'm being precise with what I'm saying. Let's go over in closing. What do we just learn in this mimer? Beautiful concepts, but let's see what do we really learn. What we learned is that when you learn Torah, when you learn Hasidut. You have to make sure that you're not, God forbid, becoming a bookcase filled with holy books. I know. A lot, it's going to help you the I know. <laughs> I'm a diabetic, and I know I'm not supposed to have sugar. <laughs> a lot, it's helping me. <laughs> it needs to become transformational. You need to change the way you look at food. You need to change the way you look at everything. That's transformational. The doctor's handing me brochures and I pile them up on my desk and then every two weeks I clean my office. It's not going to work until it becomes transformational and the same it is with my relationship with God. If I'm not going to allow that what I study about God's closeness to me, His personal involvement in my life, then I'm not going to be able to have love for God. Because when you know that God is in your life, when you find a miracle that He does for you every single day, then regardless of how bitter your situation is, you feel loved, you feel secure, and you love God. 
that's when it's a transformational understanding of how close God is to you in every inch of your life. And then when you meditate upon the infinite, omnipotent greatness of God, that creates an awe. When you stand by in Arizona by the Grand Canyon, and you're not just busy, okay, okay, let's take pictures, put it in the album. No, let's look, what is this here? When you stand on the Himalayas and you're looking, oh my God, that's transformational if you allow yourself to get past the coarseness of your neck. But if you're standing at the Grand Canyon worrying about when you're going to eat supper, minister number one, when you're going to drink some wine and get passionate, or when you're going to be able to let your hair down and get frivolous, then you're going to stand at the Grand Canyon, you're going to take a picture, you're going to be so proud that you're going to put in your album, I did that too. So the redemption of Egypt is that what you study in Torah and what you see in God's works becomes transformational. You do that by subduing the three ministers, the eating, the passion, and the frivolous, and by slowing down when you pray. Slow down. You don't do this every day, not if you have a job. But how about Shabbos? How about Shabbos? How about not using the fact that you can go to shul at 9.30 instead of 7.30 and waking up 7.30 anyway? All right, at Shabbos, wake up 8 o'clock. Take some time. Not in my notes, but you want to hear something amazing? When the Rebbe, in the previous Rebbe's times, the Rebbe was, I mean, for all his life, the Rebbe was top secretive of what he did. Never wanted people to see his service to God. So I heard this from the person that was there. He's not alive no more. Heard it from Rabbi Grona in Australia. And he told me that one Shabbat, when the previous Rebbe was alive, the Rebbe was seen as a son-in-law. Okay, you didn't mess with him, but it wasn't off limits. And they had to read the Torah. And in those days, 770 was only the small upstairs. So they decided they're going to break into the Rebbe's office and they're going to read the Torah on the Rebbe's desk. That's it. So what? We're not doing anything. The Rebbe came and he sees that they broke into his room. The Rebbe used to come like very shortly before the minion started. And the Rebbe came to the room and he sees what's going on. And all of a sudden the Rebbe starts screaming, No! Oh! No! Oh! Rabbi Grona looks at me and says, We caught him. What do you mean we caught him? No one realized that the Rebbe was davening for three hours before he came to shul. Everyone just saw the Rebbe being very good, very well-dressed, davening with the minion, starting, beginning, ending. I mean, how long do you daven when you daven with a minion? So he looked at me, we caught him. <laughs> That's what's called slowing down. If you want to experience transformational wisdom, you got to put in the work. You got to course, you got to, subdue the coarseness of your appetites and you got to sit down and slowly meditate on the words. <sighs> Nu'ah means he couldn't talk. He was in the middle of prayer. He passed the Baruch Shama. That's what it meant. I'm sorry. That's what happened. So going back to our concept over here of what's going on. If you want to be able to have transformational wisdom, it's not done when you're just racing through. Okay, I learned another mimer. Okay, I learned another halakha. Oh, I learned this commentary. Oh, I listened to this CD. I listened to this shiur on the line. Oh, I'm becoming filled. I time to buy another extension to my bookcase. But when you sit down, you dive in slowly, and you ask yourself, what does this mean? 
what does this mean i sat here sunday night listening to a lecture this exodus that exodus this re exile that exile what does it mean to me what relationship do i have to god is it transformational do I just hack a Chinese and just scream the slogans? Oh yes, Hashem is here and I believe in Hashem and He takes care of everything and everything that happens to me is from God and is for the good. And then you sit in your room and you're so resentful to God of what He's doing to you. Or do I really have a relationship with God? Yeah, yeah, I have my moments. You don't want to be eavesdropping in my office when I have my moments with God. But then there are times where I can really break through the Pharaoh. It can be transformational. What I learn and what I teach all of a sudden becomes something real to me. And that happens through slower prayer. That's the first thing we learned. The second thing we learned. You should know that there's a very, very specific teaching from the Rebbe that says it was delivered on the 19th of Kislev, which is called the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus. And I don't remember what year, you'll forgive me. But the Rebbe explains two dynamics to the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. I want to just talk about one of those two dynamics. There is a law that Friday afternoon before Shabbat, you're supposed to taste from the foods of Shabbat to whet your appetite. So too you should know, the Rebbe says, that the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe, they began their teachings Friday afternoon. We're in the fifth thousand, the fifth millennium. And thus you should know, the Rebbe explains, that the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe is that preview taste of the Shabbos foods of what Mashiach is going to give us. Do you know what that means? What that means is that these teachings don't just tell us that God exists. They're from the Mashiach Shabbos table. This is the power of seeing. Thus, I want to share with you that the second teaching that we're learning from this teaching of the Rebbe in 1968 is that it is a mandate of us not only to understand that what we're hearing is that God is in every single aspect, but every once in a while, sit down and not only get through the arrogance of the passions of the neck, but truly overcome the ego of the mind. Don't say that what, mind, what my mind can accept, I'm willing to hear. Beyond that, sorry. But how about thinking for a second in pictures? What is God? That's what we're learning here. Because we have to begin already the redemption of Mashiach. It's Friday afternoon. And we're eating from the Mashiach Shabbos meal. Thus it's not just enough for me to study and pray. Allowing for the wisdom of Hasidis to become transformational. But I also have to take it to the next step. Not too often. But at least every once in a while. To be able to try to let go of the ego of the skull which capsulates my brain. To stop looking with such meaty eyes. Because when we look with meaty eyes, then we're not capable of seeing something which is beyond that. Another story that's not in my notes. Uh, once a Rebbe, not Lubavitch, 
Once a Rebbe picked up his hand and said to his entire Hasidim group by the table, you think this is a hand? This is the name of Elohim covering the ineffable tetragrammaton of the four-letter word Havaya, the name of God. By the way, that's according to the teaching of Chassidus, like I told you last time, you remember the sun and the shield and the sun? Everything is that. Everything is Yudke Vavke covered by Elohim. But he held out his hand and he said, this is it. <laughs> so his, his son sitting next to him said, Tata, Mezeit Gif, we see body. We don't see Elohim. We don't see Havaya. We see flesh. His father turned around to him and says, you're looking with flesh, so you see flesh. The question is if every once in a while can we break through the skull and see that there's an existence beyond flesh. Now we're starting to see what divinity is, not just that there is divinity. So in short, what we're learning tonight is very, very obligatory and responsibility placed upon us that when we learn Torah, question yourself. Am I becoming a bookcase full of holy books? Or is this transformational, going from the brain to the heart, to the way I think, to the way I speak, to the way I act? Number two, am I only looking with flesh? Or every once in a while can I get past the skull, see beyond flesh? That is the closing of tonight's class. And now for the epilogue. The epilogue is a simple story. There was once a very holy righteous man, a tzaddik, and he was traveling. And he had to stay at night, and he went to a Jewish innkeeper, a simple Jew, a Kretschma Jew. And this Jew saw that he's dealing with a holy man, and he gave him the best of service, the best of rooms. Okay. He goes to sleep, and in the middle of the night, the, wife, the innkeeper's wife is, is like, Yankala, wake up. Wah, wah, wah. He says, don't you hear? There's horrible sobbing coming from the holy man's room. He wakes up, and he hears. The holy man is sobbing. So his wife tells him, go, go find out what's wrong. So he goes, he knocks on the door, he opens the door, and lo and behold, he sees the holy man sitting on the floor with a candle, sobbing and crying hysterically. He asks him, Tzaddik, what's wrong? So he told him, I'm crying over the destruction of the holy temple. I'm crying over the exile of the Jewish people. And you understand, or those who haven't heard of this, it's a custom, it's an observance called Tikkun Chatzot. At midnight, you sit and you cry over the destruction of the temple. You say a special prayers. Tikkun Rachel, Tikkun Leah. It's, it's uh, stuff over there. Just because I'm telling you the names, I don't do it. So don't. Uh, but I, I heard about it. <laughs> it wasn't transformational. It's something I read. <laughs> the this simple innkeeper, uh, just wants to understand. He says, Rebbe, what's so bad with life as it is? You're crying hysterically. Baruch Hashem. I have my inn. I have my cow, it produces milk, I sell the milk. This holy tzaddik wanted that this simple innkeeper should understand it on his level. So he told him, Yankala, you know how you don't have enough food for the cow, so it doesn't give enough milk. It gets sick, it isn't fine milk. When Mashiach comes, you're going to be able to feed your cow plentiful. It'll give the finest milk in abundance. That's what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. The simple innkeeper hears this and says, Feh! Shame on you! An old man with an old white beard is sitting in the middle of the night crying over milk? He wants milk? That's what you're crying for? You're crying for milk? 
this story is a very important story. Because besides everything you heard in this beautiful mimer, think for a second. The main thing you can take out of this mimer on the most practical level is every one of us in this room quetches about exile. Oh, when's Mashiach going to come? Now we have to ask ourselves, are we crying for milk? What are we quetching for? We're quetching for because I need to find a permanent house to live in. My car is broken. I'm not making enough money. I walk around with ripped clothes. I'm not feeling so ay ay ay. How come that guy is doing so much better than me? Really? When you learn this mimer, the first thing that this mimer does to you is it wakes you up. It rises you up. Mashiach, exile. It's a whole different, more beautiful exile. The exile is about, do I really have transformational wisdom? When I learn Torah, does it change who I am? Do I have an intimate relationship with God? Or do I just know that He exists? Thus, thus, just this itself is already a redemption. To be able to rise up from crying for milk to understanding that we're talking about a whole different exile. That in itself is a redemption. People, thank you.